All right, all right. I just want y'all to know, before we hop into the episode, um, we have reached a very important time of the year. Some of you may know what this time of the year is. You may already be filled in on what exactly we are moving into for the rest of the year. And there may be some of you who may may not have no clue, to be honest. And that's okay, because I'm here to fill you in. If you were unaware, November 1st marks Christmas time, baby. You know exactly what it is. It is time to get ready for Christmas. The only thing I'm not ready about is I went to the store today and saw that eggnog is $5. Are you kidding me? That is unreal. Other than that, I plan on having a great Christmas season, enjoying it, ultimately remembering and celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was born, but also taking this time to hug those that you love a little tighter, to be thankful for everything that God has given us. And as long as we plan to do that, then I think we are prepared and ready to hop into God's word. So let's get into it. Ephesians chapter 3. If you didn't listen to the last episode, highly recommend it. It, Paul's train of thought, if you haven't caught on already, it is, it's just going from step, 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 step. Each point before is correlating to the points after and the entire cohesion of this letter uh, is very important. Paul is painting a big picture with a bunch of little pieces that are very important and that signify some changes that are taking place in real time as he's writing when it comes to the structure and the identity of the body of Christ. So we're going to be reading through verses 7 through 13 here in Ephesians chapter 3. And like we always do, we're going to read through it all the way and then we'll break it down verse by verse. And I'm reading from the ESV. Paul says this, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So verse 7 Once again, Paul says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Now, if you remember back to last episode, we highlighted the fact that the mystery that was revealed to the apostles and to Paul, the mystery was that the Gentiles were actually going to become heirs and fellow members of the body of Christ. And I won't go through rehashing all the significance of this mystery, because we did that last episode, but just know that this revelation would be theologically and practically groundbreaking for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Actually, one interesting thing, and I wish I would have gone over this in our first episode, very first episode of Ephesians, 
Um, in chapter 1, Paul says that he had this knowledge uh, revealed to him. And the word there, revealed in Greek, is the word that we use for apocalypse, which is really interesting because we think of apocalypse or something that's apocalyptic as something that's world-ending, right? A, a dangerous disaster. But for Paul and the words that he used, apocalypse just means a, a revelation. And so Paul got this apocalypse. It was revealed to him. And Paul ultimately prays in, in chapter 1 and verses 15 and on, he prays that we'll have that same sort of revelation, that same sort of apocalypse that Paul received. But this revelation, this apocalypse, would be groundbreaking for both Jew and Gentile. So this good news, this gospel of the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's family, this is the gospel that Paul was entrusted with to share to the world. And this may seem like a somewhat simple task, or at the very least something that would require, you know, some effort, but nothing too serious. You know, it it would be like me just saying, hey, go go preach to some people. <laughs> you know, you may be a little nervous, uh, but it wouldn't be anything life-threatening or anything terrible. However, this very task that Paul is given to preach to the Gentiles, this task would lead Paul and the other apostles into countless encounters of death, imprisonment, hatred. Here's an analogy to help paint the picture of the message that they were entrusted with sharing. And keep in mind, no analogy is perfect, but the gravity of the task that Paul was given can be felt. So here, here would be an, uh, an analogous situation. Think of us as Christians, as the body of Christ, and I'm speaking about more of the traditional, those who believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. That's typically the traditional belief. And what that implies is, is that atheists, those who outright reject a belief in any God, let alone Jesus, that would imply that they wouldn't be saved. Now, within the atheist camp, there you can find people that are very harsh and angry atheists. Not only do they differ with Christians on their belief in God, but they also a lot of times believe that religion serves as a greater evil to society and makes those who believe it delusional and even morally corrupt for supporting something like the teachings that are found in the Bible. So generally speaking, and there's obviously anomalies in both camp, but uh, generally speaking, Christians and atheists that are typically angry and kind of militant, they have two vastly different worldviews, and they have two vastly different guidelines for living their life, one often condemning the other. Now imagine that one day we as Christians are told that these angry atheists who not only don't believe in God, but outright dismiss him and claim that if he did exist, he would be terrible and evil and they wouldn't follow him. Imagine one day we're told that these people who have repeatedly thrown heartless attacks at Christian belief and character are not only given the option to be forgiven, but that they also will be given a place in God's family. That they'll also automatically, if they so choose, receive 
the same status in love in treasures and in inheritance that we as Christians who have actually been trying to follow God and have been worshiping God this whole time have received. Now, you may recognize that a profound forgiveness like this is called grace. And this is the same grace that God extended to the Gentiles who at one point were seen as the enemy of the Jews, or at least people that should be avoided. They're, they're no good. And the heartbreaking part about this grace is that there are those whose response to mercy and grace is anger, hatred, and violence. And this is the response that Paul and many of the apostles experienced when sharing the gospel, the same gospel that was also meant for the Gentiles. On to verse 8, and we'll go through verse 9 as well. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul explains that the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, while inevitably risking your life to do so, for, for Paul, he sees this as an act of grace. Can you imagine that? I, I don't know about you, but I honestly feel embarrassed because when I think of God bringing grace into my life, I, I think of him making my situation better. I think of the times I've been living in sin and God gave me grace and mercy that allowed me to live a better life outside of sin. When I think of God's grace, I think of all the times where I, I there was no way I could pay my bills. And somehow when me and my wife looked at our bank account, we had money, even though we shouldn't have. It made no sense. We had money. And I see that oh, God, God is blessing us. He's being gracious to us. He's giving us grace, even though we don't deserve it. When I think of grace, I think of God bringing good things to pass in my life. The last thing I would ever imagine that I could categorize as God's grace would be something that God puts me into that leads me to suffer and to eventually die. But th this is exactly the grace that was given to Paul. Think about that for a second. Paul's grace was not that he ended up living a materially better life. Paul's grace, honestly, it is not the picture of grace that a lot of us have popped into our head. Paul's grace was that he is rewarded with the chance to go suffer and die for Christ. What was Paul's life before Christ where suffering and dying is seen as an option of God being gracious to Paul? Well, if we'll recall, Paul, before he was Paul, was called Saul. And Saul would go out and hunt Christians and persecute them and lead them to their death. 
He was diametrically opposed to Christianity, one of the worst possible people that you could ever encounter. He was utterly evil. And the only thing that was able to turn him away from this evil was an encounter with Christ and a grace that called him to suffer for what is good. In the same way that the Christians that Paul persecuted suffered for what was good. And that was the belief and the sharing of Jesus Christ. Paul was so far off the rails that for him, God's grace looked like suffering. For him, God's grace looked like being publicly hated and ridiculed. That was the gift of grace that Paul received. I don't even really know how to put this concept into words because it seems so backwards. Grace and mercy, in my mind, are not synonymous with suffering and pain. But I guess we can call it grace and mercy if you are called to suffer and face pain in the name of something that is wholly good, in the name of something that will cause more people to be able to avoid eternal suffering and eternal pain. Grace can look like relief from suffering, but it can also look like suffering. I don't really know how to conceptualize that. I hope the way I'm explaining this is making sense to you all. I, I, I still struggle in my mind to conceptualize that. But sometimes it seems that you can be so far in the gutter that the only way out of the gutter is to suffer for something greater than yourself. I mean, don't you think that is a big part of a lot of the depression and anxiety and mental illness and the things that are going on in our youth, in the youthful generation today, in our Western societies? There's so much depression and anguish and uh, a lack of purpose. Because we're told that in our modern world, the thing that we're supposed to strive for is ourselves. We're told that the thing that will make us happy is ourselves. Somehow, simultaneously, we're told that human beings are the problem, but somehow human beings are the solution. Those two do not go together. You cannot be the knot and also be the person that unties the knot. In a world where we're told that our purpose is our happiness, it inevitably leads to pain and suffering and anguish. But if we were to live in a world, a world that used to be a reality and in, in some other places in our world is still a reality, a world where the greatest good, the highest thing that you can strive for is honoring God, and honoring God looks like also honoring your family, doing everything you can for your community to uplift something that is greater than yourself. It seems to me that if we have no choice on this earth to avoid pain, suffering, and anguish, 
then we might as well be suffering, being in pain, and facing anguish in the name of doing something that is greater than simply pleasing our own foolish and selfish desires. Paul caused suffering to countless Christians before he found Jesus. And his grace was that he now gets to suffer to help lead more people to a Lord and Savior that can give them eternal hope and eternal purpose. That's what grace looks like. On to verse 10. Paul says that he's done all of this so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church is the manifold wisdom of God that might be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places. So God wants his wisdom to be known to all the other spiritual beings out there, right? All the other rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's not talking about the leaders and kings here on earth. It's talking about other spiritual beings. And that message that God is wanting to send, because in a sense, this is sending a message. The church is here to send a message. And that message is the one that Paul neatly lays out in the first two chapters of this letter to the believers in Ephesus. But what really pops out to me is how this message gets sent. Let's read this again. The message gets sent so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So who is in part responsible for this message being made known, for this message being sent to these rulers and authorities? It's the church. The entire body of the church is what reflects God's manifold wisdom. So knowing this, does it, it makes sense. It's starting to tie some things together. It makes sense why Paul was so adamant about overcoming the differences that cause division within the body of Christ. Right? The things that he just spent the last two chapters going on about, about, hey, uh, don't fight over circumcision. Hey, Gentiles, you once were not a part of this at all. He had no he had no stake in this at all. But now through Christ, you do. And then he reminds the Jews at the end of chapter 2, hey, uh, the body of Christ is now the new temple. That's how you access God. So if you want to access God like you did before and be able to worship God in the most immediate sense, um, recognize that the body of Christ is the temple and you can no longer separate uh, amongst the Gentiles simply because you have disagreements about circumcision or other parts of the law. Because where there is division in the body, there's not a unified church. And where there's not a unified church, there's not a vessel that can send the message of God's wisdom. But also, what this seems to indicate as well is that the church sends a message. And as the body of Christ, our actions dictate whether or not that message is one of God's wisdom or a message of our inability to fully follow Christ. So we really need to be careful with how we interact throughout the body of Christ. And now don't get me wrong. 
even if we fail, even if the body of Christ messes up, fails, stumbles, falls at times, God will have his purposes and plans come to fruition with or without you or me. But we still have the choice of whether or not we want to be a part of the grace that God is sending out to the world. But we need to make sure also that we're not ignorant to the fact that when we as the church, when we as the body of Christ publicly fail, it does become a strain on God's image. At least that's how the world views it. When Christians fall short, when we sin, when we act in hate, when, when, there's, when it's found out that there's corruption in various churches amongst various leaders, we get ridiculed. And often God becomes a laughingstock to those who are far from him. And since we are called to be God's representatives on earth, we're naturally held to a higher standard. And our every action, whether this is rightly judged or not, it becomes a reflection of who God is. So when Paul says that God's wisdom is announced through the church, this is great to hear, but it's also a reminder of the great responsibility that we have to image Christ to the best of our ability. All right, let's finish it off. Verses 11 through 13, Paul says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So this whole plan from the Jews and the Gentiles both becoming heirs in the family of God to the church being the beacon of God's wisdom to the spiritual authorities, all of this is a part of God's eternal plan that had to come through Jesus Christ. And I love verse 12. I'll read it again. It says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. It's talking about Jesus there. Because we're reminded that in Christ, we can be bold, not just in our daily interactions with God, but we can boldly approach God himself. We now have access to God directly through faith. And why is this a big deal? Well, off the top, the idea that a mere puny human can directly have access to the God of the universe, that's quite remarkable. But in the context, this idea would center around the, the whole picture of the temple and what that means for both groups. And as we discussed a few episodes ago, and I brought it up a little bit earlier, but Paul in chapter 2 tells the believers that the body of Christ is a new temple. Together they are the place where God dwells. And previously, before Christ, the Jewish temple was the place where God dwelled. And in order to access God in the most intense way, it required sacrifices. It required being cleansed fully of sin. You had to be a high priest. There was all of these different hurdles you had to jump through just to get into the presence of God. So access to God previously was highly limited. And at best, the Jews could take pride in the fact that God dwelled within their community in the temple. But most of them had no immediate access to God in, in the closest sense that you can think of. And for the Gentiles, they had no access at all. But now, because the body of Christ is the new temple, the place where God dwells, 
there is no barrier for entry other than following Christ and being a member of his body. So with that in mind, what Paul is saying, he's saying, hey, uh, don't forget that all of you can approach God boldly. You all have access to God. You don't need to be scared or hesitant because if you have faith in Christ, you can be confident that God dwells among you. And this reminder of God's closeness and God's accessibility is to aid the believers in times of trials, in suffering, similar to the suffering that Paul is currently facing as he's writing this letter. But Paul doesn't view this suffering as something to mourn, but something to celebrate because it is for the glory of God's people. Remember, Paul refers to his calling as something that stemmed from God's grace. And I bet that Paul is able to take peace in his times of suffering because he recognizes that he has full access to the God of the universe because of Jesus Christ.